Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Well, maybe you can just tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, like, um, just curious to know, like, what what drew you to your spiritual path, and mm. you know, um, just just a little background about yourself, I yeah. think, would be helpful if you start talking about that, and then yeah, yeah. because I, the way I kind of want to start this off is just by introducing introducing you, so that people can like kind of like relate. Because one thing about you, Nish, is like you're talking about things I I super resonate, which is God and stuff, you know, <laughs> but you know, out there, nobody's really talking about it. Right. Yes. But, but then you're bridging it because like, I feel like there's this like generation of, of us now that it's like, we are living millennials. Like we're whatever we, what you'd call like a millennial young generation. That's like living, trying to live a spiritual life and like also integrating it into modern, into modern. Yeah. And all the narratives about what we are to do in the world, you know, the success we feel like we ought to have and the pleasure we think we deserve. Yes. Yes. So that, that whole background, like, because back in the day, like if your Indian parent told you, you're going to be a doctor, you were going to be a doctor. Yeah. A child had very little will as to what they would do with their life. And when they decided to radically take life into their own hands, like become a monk, you know, often that meant severing ties with one's family. Right. Then they're just kind of abstracted away from the world. So it's like now where I think not only are there young people who are struggling with narratives as to what they should do in the world and, and who they should be, but they now also uniquely, I think, have the freedom and the privilege to pursue whatever kind of life they want to pursue. Yeah. And perhaps now, more than at any, at any other time, there's like this ability for a child to grow up into the kind of person they want to be. Mm-hmm. And that gives even more responsibility to the top, ta- more uh, uh, precedence for the task who am I and what is this world and how should I live in it? Right. So you're right. It's an it's interesting, interesting time in spiritual life, isn't it? Absolutely. Spirituality as a whole. Yes, because it feels like there are so many possible paths one can take. Yeah. And I think since I've been young, my question has really been, what is, what is the highest path? Right. What, like I want to be successful, right? Like I've, I've grown up very conditioned to be a successful human being, yes. you know, but at some point during college, uh, it became apparent to me, like my mortality just became apparent yeah. to me somehow it became very apparent to me <laughs> like during like 2012, mm-hmm. like somehow I just bought into the thing like, oh man, like this world might actually just like explode on yeah. December 21st, 2012. <laughs> I don't know why. I think it was just certain things going on, but, um, but anyways, I, I've always wanted like human excellence. Yes. And ultimately that led me into reading about spiritual paths because when i when i remember the first time i heard about a prospect of in enlightenment i i i felt i was like oh well that that's what it's all about because that's yes. you know that's something that you can actually do for yourself everything else is temporary everything else is going to go with death mm-hmm. it's a profound realization where did you come across that concept of enlightenment a book or teacher yeah. see i i don't know the first time i, I the first time i can remember would have been a book yeah. or, or something I was reading online. Um, probably, you know, cause Buddhism, you know, I would walk around, I went to college in Berkeley and I would walk around and see Buddhist temples. So naturally 
I took a Buddhism class my my second year of of college. Yeah. But that summer, I started reading uh, more about the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother's also told me from a young age, I, I asked certain questions, you know, that were more like, who is God? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But when, when, when it started coming to me was um, in college, it started coming back. Um, before that, in high school, I also had the inclination to take a separate path than my peers, but it mm-hmm. kind of took the form of like... Um, um, you know, being like kind of like a renegade and like rebelling, rebelling, you know, and yeah. getting into like, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. The madhouse, <laughs> yeah. insane, look crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, getting back to, um, it was a book. It was definitely yeah. me reading something and then hearing about the prospect of enlightenment mm-hmm. and realizing, oh, that's what life's about. Like, it was very, yeah, you know, yeah. clearly. I think that's true for a lot of young people. Yeah. Like it's usually a book like Be Here Now or yeah. Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now or yeah. something with a title Now. <laughs> but Power of uh, Now is one of power, the first. Yeah, right? The yeah, power that's now, usually yeah. something like that. Even yeah. something as, I don't know, as kind of mundane and pedestrian as the law of attraction can right. sometimes bring up, start a person off. Totally. These texts are kind of like gateway drugs. Yeah. But really the interesting thing is, why is it that these books hit? You know, why are they so powerful? And it's like, you can't light a wet match on fire. So you have to be ready for that book to come into your life. So what's going on there, right? Yes. And I think most kids, when they're like, as you said, as a child, you were asking your questions, who is God to your mother? And yeah. uh, a lot of children, I think, but at a young age, naturally, as, as even the Christ says, lest you be as little children, yours is not the kingdom of heaven, right? They naturally understand um, these things. Like spiritual truths are very kind of easy for them and accessible for them. They don't feel the need to overly intellectualize. They've not really bought into a narrative about themselves or who they should be, or even the concept human excellence isn't there for them. They're just excited to be out in the world and they cry when it's time to cry. They laugh when it's time to laugh, but there's a kind of ease and naturalness in the life of a child. So we all remember that ease. Um, But not only that, the child I think is so wise when it comes to God. On one hand, she knows that she does not live by her own power. And not even by her parents' power, but that there is some kind of force in this world that is responsible for her digestion, for her breathing, for the way the world appears around her. She knows that intuitively, but here's the most important thing. She also knows that such a force is so uh, profoundly vast that it cannot be crammed into the narrow notions of a belief system. So the child doesn't really have any beliefs about God yet. She knows God. And only that, she knows that God is infinite and an infinite being cannot be described by a finite language. So the child is, I would say, spiritual but not religious as young kids like to identify these days, right? And that's true religion or dharma. But then I think something happens, right? Age 12, the mind starts to maybe ask questions and, and as it should. And the questions are, well, why do people say he? I'm more comfortable saying she. Is God a man or a woman? Is God a being in the sky? Does he live somewhere on earth, like on a mountain? Does she reside in the heavens? Um, how do I talk to her? Like you ask these questions. And like the tooth fairy or like the uh, Santa Claus myth, immediately you realize all the adults around you don't know shit about God. And not only that, when they talk about God, they pretend like they know something, but what they teach offends the sensibility of any child because they immediately know what the religious institutions of their cultures are spewing. It's not it. As they say on TikTok, that's not it, sis. <laughs> they know. 
Um, and so a lot of people, I think that initial trauma of asking these innocent questions and then being sold this fear narrative, this guilt narrative, you are born in sin, etc. All of that, that forces a person away from the path of spirituality, right? Some people maybe grow up in atheist households and very quickly their love for God is doused by a cynical rationality, what have you. But you're right. Uh, once you get into college, what you might have brought with you is your love of learning, if high school hasn't stamped that out yet. Mm-hmm. But yeah. if you, as you you still had that love of learning, that love of growth, that love of human excellence, naturally people like you will find in the bookstore, in the self-help section, right. some book, like something like Flow, right? Yeah. Um, and sooner or later, you'll be a Buddhist, you'll be a yogi, you know? It's inevitable. <laughs> it's like, it's a given. Right. But um, for others, it's it's probably not likely until they've really become disillusioned with the various things that society tells you you ought to want Mm -hmm. you know so unless you get a lot of money you're probably not going to realize that it isn't going to make you happy you know you might still feel that like what we call money samskara yeah you know or uh one day you're just going to wake up next to a sexual partner and realize that no amount of orgasm is going to give you the gratification that you need and then you might be hungry and usually that's later in life right it's so sad because people, when they truly want spirituality, it's too late. Yeah. You know, and it's so rare to find young people who are interested in genuine spirituality. So how does it happen, right? I would propose um, the model from our yoga tradition, which is samskaras. You know, we each carry with us a set of impressions left over from previous incarnations. And those impressions demand expression in this life. Right. Uh, now, the problem rises, Armand, when one's samskaras are not in line with the overall samskara, meaning the overall trend of society. And it's we live in a, a madhouse where the values um, by which we live are premised almost entirely on lust and greed. You know, greed disguised as ambition, lust disguised as love. Um, and if one senses just even just the briefest glimpse into the hypocrisy of all of this, it will create in a person an unquenchable thirst for the truth. I think that's how we all come to it, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's the story of us almost. Like everyone just, yeah. Blessed is is she who in college realizes maybe she doesn't need to climb up the corporate ladder. Maybe she doesn't need a house in the hills. Right. You know, blessed is she who is looking for something deeper because her parents won't be on board. Right. That's for sure. Parents won't quite get it. I mean, if you're lucky, you might have Indian or Buddhist parents or something like Chinese or Thai parents who are Buddhist or whatever, right, right. or like hippies parents, right? Like who are, but if you're lucky, maybe your parents will get it. Yeah. But more often than not, even the parents who are yogis, yeah. they will still be worried about your yogic path. Yeah. So this is, I think, a unique challenge. A young person knows they need to take life by the reins, yeah. find meaning in their own way. Yes. But they also know that sometimes to do that risks the rebellion and rock and roll lifestyle kind of like kind of excludes them from the rest of it. The right. madhouse. Right. So here's the dilemma. <laughs> right. Because perhaps in previous ages, previous times, there was kind of society was more built to accept, to accept, accept that. Right. Yeah. That inclination. Yes. But that's not really the, the, the place we really find ourselves in these days. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there's value in like systematizing and like if society was to like systematize, you know, like, like, let's say in school, oh, you can point out this person has inclinations towards not really worldly things. Yes. Towards more. Do you, do you, 
can you even see seeing that can you see that being a possibility yeah yeah and it's it's beautiful because here there are two levels going on on one level we have to recognize that we can never systematize spirituality right. that turns spirituality into religion yeah. and that's what turns religion into an oppressive institution of control mm-hmm. because um a master a spiritual master will show you how to climb the mountain yeah you know but she will never point out where the holes are yeah that's your job so to become a master you must find your own way to climb the mountain And the beauty of Indian spirituality is it recognizes that every spiritual practitioner has their own proclivity. Some people are worshipful. Mm-hmm. Their faith comes naturally to them. Yeah. And for those people, we prescribe the path of bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion. Yeah. And not only that, in the path of bhakti yoga, you are free, absolutely free to choose any form of the divine that is inspiring to you. So people are like what god should I pray to yeah. or who is god? The question is who are you? because if you're a mother then like if you identify as a mother god should be baby gopala child right right if you're uh, more like um uh, a lover like your erotic relationships or intimate relationships are the most important to you god should be your girlfriend or boyfriend mm-hmm. you know like saint teresa of avila the way she talks about jesus oh my god it's like she's writing to him like he's her boyfriend <laughs> which is exactly how it should be right right, right. or you could have a friend relationship with god can you imagine that would be blasphemy in some religious traditions yeah. to be like buddy buddy with god yeah. to just speak to god like hey bro yeah and the idea here is that however you feel most attracted to god is perfectly valid and whatever form you want for that god is perfectly valid it can be krishna right. it can be jesus it can be buddha it can be your guru it can be an acorn from your favorite forest it doesn't matter what matters is that there's an object of your devotion Secondly you see that object as the highest possible thing in the universe the greatest source of all things yeah. um and thirdly that you relate to it in the way that most fits your personality that's bhakti yoga not a lot of people feel faith so naturally especially in our very cynical rational world right yeah. for those people there is hope <laughs> uh here raja yoga the path of meditation you know you experience buddhism they are completely atheistic non-theistic you would say right yeah. so there an aspirant is not asked to believe in anything other than the method so don't have faith in the conclusions but you must have some faith and the faith here is in the method you have to have faith in the masters you have to have faith that the buddha did it so i can do it and you know it's funny not a lot of people do have that faith they think that the buddha did it so i can't do it buddha was great i'm nobody right but if you have that faith meditation is awesome however what if you don't even have faith in the methods You don't have faith in God so you can't practice bhakti. You don't have faith in meditation so you can't practice raja yoga or buddhist meditation. What's left? And here is my favorite, gyana yoga. The yoga of philosophical inquiry. This is for people who are very like intellectually oriented, who are used to kind of penetrating deeply into subtle topics and who like to debate and argue and think. It's a dangerous path. Path because you can get lost in all of that. After all, a concept of truth is different from truth. Um but this path says you don't have to take anything on faith. You know, you don't even need a deity. You don't even need to practice meditation really. All you need is to recognize the fact of your experience here now. You know, because once you recognize this fact that you are not the body, you are not the mind, you are the awareness in which the body and mind come and go. Once you recognize that fact, your life will immediately change. Now the asterisk here is in order to be the kind of person who can recognize this fact in the way in which I am describing, you need to do a lot of bhakti and a lot of <laughs> raja yoga. <laughs> But you can see you're right everyone is different so you can't systematize spirituality but here are some systems i just presented right so can you see the paradox it's like yeah. we've got a system and like you said that system is inclusive to people with such inclinations but within that system there is a vast allowance of individualism 
Right. Well, I think, and that's kind of more like a dynamic structure because it's not a set. Exactly. It's not fixed for anyone. Yeah. And it's kind of like, like nature, like everyone, everyone has their roles, everyone, all of nature, everything, you know, every tree grows the way it's, it, that it's all in the seed. It's Mm -hmm. all in the, you know, samskara. Um, Yeah. And, you know, it, it feels like as I, as people, as I have, you know, deepened my love for God and I've just wanted to spend more time in nature, you know, away from system structures, society. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I guess, do you think there is value then in, do you think these things are related or or natural? These systems are, could we say maybe they're, they're like natural, like bhakti? Mm, Yes. Yes, certainly. I mean, you know, the Christian tradition, the Christian tradition is one of the best bhakti traditions in the world, right? We're very powerful bhakti tradition. All the great saints of Christianity, St. John, Augustine, Teresa, such lovers of God. Oh my God. And if someone could just, you know, practice a fraction of that humility and devotion, they would swiftly be liberated from the problems of the world. Not only that, Christ, I think, had the highest possible spiritual ideals for an aspirant. Complete lustlessness. He whosoever looketh upon a woman has already committed adultery in his mind. You know, oh my God, what what purity. Now, Christianity quite clearly is a powerful stream, you know, but the Christ was a bhakta, through and through. Yeah. Christianity is probably not going to appeal to those people who aren't bhaktas. Yeah. Right? But for those people who are bhaktas, and, and here I'm talking about true Christianity, not yeah. the kind of mindless diet. Here I'm reminded of a story. Once I had spoken to a father at a church about some introductory remarks he did about some music, and they were playing like uh, uh, Beethoven and it's pagan music, you know. And I went up to the father, this beautiful, sweet man, you know, I was like, wow, you know, in your, your opening prayer, you said that um, this music is holy or something like that, and that we can enter heaven here and now. It's very progressive of you, father. Thank you. Congratulations. And he was totally um, surprised by how progressive what he said was, partly because he didn't really understand the core tenets of his theology. <laughs> but basically what I'm trying to say here is that a lot of people who say they're Christian, but have never read any of the books. Right. We don't really understand, you know? Yeah. Okay, so for a person who is a true Christian, yeah. a true bhakta, Christianity is great. Yeah. As a system, Christianity offers you a lot of ways to practice that bhakti, right. right? Someone who is a jnani, like more intellectually inclined and less faith-based, will want to be a Buddhist. Right. That's natural. Right. You know, whether someone is a bhakta or whether someone is a jnani, that usually comes from past samskaras. Yeah. So a jnani, probably, this is what's going to happen. At a young age, they're going to be exposed to Christianity. They're going to see it as incredibly stupid. Yeah. They're going to be asking questions that cannot be answered. Yeah. They're not going to be satisfied with the answer, who can understand the will of God? Uh, more than that, they're going to penetratingly see into the hypocrisy of the institution around them. And in disgust, they're going to walk out, right? That's usually yeah. what happens. Then... They're going to enter a world of materialism, scientific materialism, where I am a brain producing consciousness and this is a meaningless world and I'm a meaning making creature. They're going to live for pleasure. And after a while, that's not going to do it for them. Then they'll come to Buddhism. So Buddhism offers a safe haven. But look at this. This is crazy. While it's natural to be inclined to one or the other at first, usually one turns into the other in its maturity. So when you become a very mature jnani, like if you walk the Buddhist path a lot, you're really meditating, you will touch upon something. The Buddhists call it the clear light of the void. That's so beautiful, so sublime, that dare I say it, 
you cannot resist praying to it. I know Buddhists in the room are going to be upset about it. But that's why like northern Buddhists, the Vajrayana school, right? Tibetan Buddhists are so worshipful. They have rituals and deities. Well, they don't call them deities, right? They're mental emanations or whatever. But ultimately, they know that there's a value in kind of imagery and uh, mysticism. And so a Buddhist, notice how they can become bhaktas. And then a bhakta, notice how they become jnanis. Through a deep, deep love for God, they come to know God in a way that's far deeper than all these intellectual pundits, right? right. So the pundit is citing the Vedas, citing the Upanishads. You see Ramakrishna, Ramana Maharshi, totally didn't study any scripture. Ramana would say, what do I know of Sankhya, Yoga, Vedanta? He would say, I don't, I don't know any books. Yeah. But he could speak more eloquently than any of those pundits. He could debeat, defeat them in debate. Yeah. Debeat them, I said. <laughs> defeat them in debate uh, because he had tasted the thing that I only read about. Right, right. So you see how they kind of... So yeah. it, you're right. It's natural to be one or the other, but yeah. it's also natural that they should merge. Right. Ultimately, right. yes. Absolutely. So now could you tell me more about the students that you're working with? Yeah. How, how is that going? This is a great question. The great place in our conversation to bring it up too yeah. because I've also been contemplating, you know, what you said earlier about how some children at a very young age have a, a deep yearning for spiritual life, a natural inclination. Right. Now, in uh, like when, when a child is young, their parents will tell them, um, hey, you can be whatever you want to be. Yes. Do you want to be an astronaut? You can be an astronaut. You want to be a fighter pilot? Be a fighter pilot. You know, the world is full of possibilities for a young child. And a young child truly believes that she can be anything. I have a friend, and it's such a sad story, so sweet. Um, dear friend, my sister, essentially. And she, um, as a young girl, went to a bookstore and in the children's section of that bookstore saw um, a child author who had published a book. And she was so excited about that. She's like, look, this is someone my age and her book is being carried by Barnes and Nobles or whatever, you know. I can do this. I, as a 12-year-old, am just as good a writer as this one, if not better. I can do it. So she went home and she started working on her book, you know. And then at dinner, she told her mom, rather like haughtily, excitedly, you know, as children can be sometimes, she told her mom, mom, don't worry about any financial concerns anymore. So sweet, right? She's like, don't worry about all the bills. I got us. I'll, I'll take care of the bills because I'm going to write a book and we're going to be famous and rich. And the mom was just offhand like, she was like, yeah, right. Right? The cynicism of the mom. Because she had been in the world for a while. This young child, that was the moment when she realized, oh my God, dreams are... You know, so usually parents will tell their kids you can be whatever you want until it's time for them to be that. Yeah. Then they'll be like, no, 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 doctor, lawyer, engineer only. Padavale, padavale. No need to be all that. Just be, right? So that's, that's the, the great hypocrisy of parenting yeah. is that a parent says to the child in the beginning when there are no real consequences that she can be anything. But the moment she enters school or high school, particularly in high school, college, right. when she starts exhibiting tendencies that look like they're contrary to the typical breadwinning paths, you know, yeah. Then the parents get worried and they kind of stamp it out. Right, right. So I've been reflecting. There are some parents who, you know, I work privately with some groups and I work at a beautiful Catholic school, St. Martin of Tours, very enlightened Catholic school, mm. true Catholic school, I would say, uh, based on love and not fear. But um, I work in that school and I teach privately. And I noticed that among the students that come, there are some kids who do have a very natural inclination for spiritual life that without a doubt, they will be punished for it. If they maintain that same yearning into primary school, high school, college, probably it will express itself as it did for you, Arman. Right. Like that kind of rebellious rock and roll, kind of like I'm slowly, slowly moving away from the conventional path. 
And I'm sure, Arman, you, you've had difficult conversations with your folks. Absolutely. Right? Like, they're probably like, what are you doing? I mean, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, there's a lot of trouble there. But, yeah, of course, because Ooh. they were worried about me. They, you know, I was taking the <sighs> different path. Yeah. It's so sad, but, like, love can sometimes be the greatest obstacle to love. Right. If that makes sense at all. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because love, if it comes with attachment, in other words, if a parent loves their kid in such a way where it's like this is my kid i'm attached to this kid naturally fear will come yeah and when fear is there love walks out of the room now it's not that love and fear are different right like we just talked earlier today um fear is love but it's a very low expression of love it's love without trust right? right so here when a parent is upset at you make no mistake they love you so much unfortunately it just so happens that in that moment a they don't trust you Right. And sometimes they might have good reason not to. Right. Like precedent wise, like our mistakes sometimes make our parents even more frightened. They've had to come pick us up at like 4 a.m. somewhere. So they understand like, oh, my God, this is a child. She's going to make mistakes. It's okay if she like falls down when she's trying to walk. But now if she tries to be a rock star, the mistakes that she makes have greater consequences. Right. So my kid is a mistake making creature. A parent knows that. And so it's not a parent's fault to realize that uh, this is probably another mistake. That's one thing. Secondly, um, it's not only that they don't have trust in you, they might not have trust in God. So your parents might not trust in the all, trust in divine grace, all of that, right? So that creates in them, I think, a feeling of scarcity, of fear, of all based in love, of course. And then they say to you, oh, no, 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 Arman. Got to get back into the contra- uh, the the conformist path, you know? Yeah. And it's so sad because it can be years of this. Yeah. Years of this. And I think that's the first real sign of spiritual maturity. Right. You know that you really made progress on the spiritual path when your parents don't get your goat anymore. Right. If they're still like, kind of jerking your chain, that's good. It's a blessing. It shows us that we have work to do. Yeah. But when we can go and like sit with our parents and love them, even for all their like fear mongering, yeah. just kind of sit with them and not be affected by their wave of let's say what do we call it uh, discouragement <laughs> knowing that they mean well then we know we've really advanced right, so right. i think a lot of these kids that i work with they will in the same way have tension with your parents like when they get to a certain age they're going to want to be rock stars yeah because for many of them in my case especially that was the closest thing you might understand as being a sadhu right like right. living for passion mm. for what you see as an ideal for beauty You know, an artist, I say, is a beautiful example of a spiritual person because they're someone who they don't know it yet, but they love God, but they love God as beauty, right? So beauty is God to them. And they, for beauty, for the sake of art, they're willing to sacrifice sleep, food, sex, money. How beautiful, how noble. That's what we call a hero, a vira. So selfless. Um, But you see, the society that we live in tells you, don't be a hero. Just be in the flock, just... Make enough for your wife and children, husband, and just yeah. be quiet, right? Yeah. And and here the artist is saying, no, rise up, be as noble as a human soul demands you to be, you know, right, go ahead. Right. Yeah. So I think these kids will be punished. So now my question is, what do I do at this stage as an educator mm-hmm. with these children coming and recognizing in them this natural proclivity? Because previously I had the tendency whereby I would meet someone. And by the way, to give you an illustration, some of these kids are so pure so inclined to spiritual life that they are incredibly fragile, delicate, and almost allergic to the world. So they're very likely to get bullied. You know, they have such a gentle nature that they don't stand up for themselves. Not only that, I do know a kid who could not watch certain TV shows, you know, because they were too scary. In other words, the stakes 
of a show as benign as Dora the Explorer was too high for this child. Right. You know, and you might say, well, that we got to fix that, right? right? I mean, the, the first inclination here is we have to correct for that because this poor child, this delicate soul, this sweet, fragrant flower is going to be crushed by the world outside. So what we do is we try to change that kid to match the world. Shame on me forever trying that. You know, I mean, that's also coming from a place of fear. It's like, oh, I'm afraid as to what's going to happen to this kid if we don't equip them with like this real, like tell them, okay, you know, the, the world is wrong, but this is the world and this is what bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, we shouldn't, someone once told me, a debate coach a long time ago told me, don't pander to bigots. Mm. You know, I, I kind of like that. I was like, don't pander to the world. If the world's going to be a certain way, you know, if a kid is not that way, even if that kid's not going to be functional in the world, whose fault is that? I think it's the world's fault, right? So what do we do with a kid like that? So now recently I've, I've been experimenting with just deepening that yearning, you know, because I'll notice I'll have a kid like this. Um, and when I talk about God or angels or demons or notions of heaven and hell, when I talk about free will and once we had a like a matrix kind of themed series of classes uh, teaching Vedanta, you know, but through the lens of the matrix. Yeah. Um, so the kids were all watching the matrix together and we we're discussing simulation theory, all of that. And my, one of my children, one of my kids there, who was particularly sensitive came home and got very disturbed that day. Very disturbed. Like um, he was perhaps the only kid who really got the implications of what I was saying. Yeah. I was like, is this world real? You know, what is real? Like all those conversations. And everyone was like, oh, that's so cool. You're right. The, this blue Yeti microphone is not out there. It's in here. The world is just light. Uh, the images are in my mind. Like they, they, they learned that, but they were just, oh, cool. And they went in and played. This kid sat with it for a while. He followed the logical, the, 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 the stream of thought to its logical conclusion. And I think the, the revelation there disturbed him. He, he even said to me, he's like, yeah, Nish, there have been so many coincidences in my life. That probably means this world is not as real and as objective as I thought. And that was his own thought. I didn't put that there. And when he had that thought, I noticed he became very quiet and very indrawn. And when he went home, his mom called me, emailed me and said, he's having what looks like a bad trip. Yeah. You know, and I thought, is this a Kundalini awakening for this child? You know, like this 12, eight-year-old. 8 to 12 I can't, is he going through some kind of awakening at such a can, can that even happen you know so when that happened what I did Armand was I backed up a little bit I just stopped all the spiritual themes and I went back to talking about like should electoral colleges be a thing you know um, what about gun rights in the US second amendment like just I went back to talking about other like more debate related stuff and less um, and for context I, I teach debate at St. Martin of Tours, and I teach debate to these private, that's what I started doing. But now I, it's turned into more of like uh, philosophy and meaning of life, ethics like that. Because you have the the debate club, the, the young philosophers exactly, club, and then yeah. the debate class. Club. Exactly. At St. Martin's, I just felt like we were really, really cheating these kids out of having the conversations they really wanted to have. Right. You know, and those conversations were conversations of, of substance. What is life? What is death? What is God? But instead, here we are talking about the damn electoral college. I mean, cool. Yeah. Sure. Someone's got to talk about that. But 12-year-olds have 
better things to think about. Yeah. You know, Plato said it himself, politics is for stupid people. Right. You know, Plato refused to be involved in politics because he had better things to think about, deeper things to think about. Right. Vivekananda, the great Swami who brought yoga to the West in the 1890s, he was always asked, what are your politics on this, that? He would say, God and truth are my only politics. All else is trash. 12-year-olds are above the inane political nonsense that adults seem to spend all their time talking about, right? So debate is very political, you know, kind of like worldly. Cool, like that's what I teach. As I, th- I think there's real value in developing one's intellectual skills through the practice of debate. Certainly in our Indian culture, right? Indian and Persian culture, debate is central in, in Muslim culture. Right. Are your parents Muslim? Uh, not technically. Not te- yeah, but like in Muslim culture, they're very into debate. And that's beautiful. Right. Um, so I like that. But this boy, at least uh, this boy, you know, who, uh, edit out the name. Yeah. I don't mean to call anyone out, but yeah. Oh, wait. I should probably. No, I'll take it out. There. Okay. Yeah. I'll this boy. I didn't, you didn't say the name. I didn't say the name. Okay. Yeah, you okay, said okay. this boy. I just want to call anyone okay, out. Yeah, yeah. I won't say the name. Yeah. But um, this boy, he um, went home. He had this full on awakening because he was very sensitive to these spiritual truths. Mm-hmm. He was the first one of this caliber that I've ever encountered. I had met so many students in years of teaching. Never had I seen someone so. Sensi- like sensitive and I mean that in the way of like transparent to truth right? right so when he heard this conversation about the matrix and about reality and all that flipped out apparently so I backed up and now here's the interesting thing he really didn't have that much of an interest in talking about all these other stuff yeah. all these other things he didn't want to talk about electoral colleges he, he, he knew it yeah. he was smart he knew all that stuff he just you know and one day we finished class and he came up to me and he was like Nish Next week, can we talk about gods, demons, and angels again? I was like, damn. And then I have another um, child, uh, older, 17, 16, 17. Whenever I talk about like worldly stuff, he checks out. He's gone. The moment I talk about energy healing, Reiki, um, spirit, Holy Ghost, his eyes snap into attention and I have him for the whole class. Everyone's been saying, you know, um, kids have these focus problems, right? Like, oh, kids today are so ADD. I don't think that's it. I mean, yeah, maybe they're looking at screens. And of course, information is, oh, sure, sure. Let's, that's probably all true. But maybe, and just maybe, it also has something to do with the fact that we're putting things in front of these kids that are not important and they know it. Kids are smarter today than at any other time in history. They know when you're feeding them bullshit. Yeah. And that's what all the social media is doing. Yeah. It's feeding them bullshit. So they, of course, they have no attention span. Right. What? Nothing's holding your attention, you know? Right. Um, and when I auditioned for the position at St. Martin's, to their credit, you know, the fact that they even hired me is kind of crazy. Yeah. You're a Catholic school, and I'm this, like, long hair. I think I was wearing nail polish at the time, and I, I was kind of crazy-looking fellow, you know? And I walk in, and I do the interview, and um, I was asked, how do you discipline children? Like, how do you make sure they're paying attention, you know? And my, my philosophy has always been, as an educator... You can never force attention. Either you're saying something of value and the kids pay attention or you're not. It's not the kid's fault. You know, and to their credit, they really like that. And I find, you know, sometimes when I have a class and we're talking about death, class is hush. Everyone's there. Yeah. yeah. Right. So to your question, Arman, in this very long-winded way, to your question about what do you do to adjust for these sensitive kids, these inclinations, I think one should not stamp them out. One should certainly ground the kid in, in logic and reason and assertiveness so they can defend themselves in the world. But one should always be careful to point out that the kid is the right one. You know, it's not that the kid is wrong and the world is right. 
even though everyone else acts and thinks and feels differently, the kid is right to be looking for that which is more worthwhile in this life. And so for such a kid, I think one should expose them to as much spirituality as possible of all different faiths, you know. Um, maybe it's not appropriate at that age to read from like the Bible, the Quran, the Upanishads, the Vedas. Stories are probably best. So for such a kid, oh my God, you know, they don't want like Hansel and Gretel really. They want like, um, I have a, a parent who, when he comes to a Sangha, a Monday night we meet and he comes. Every spiritual story we tell takes it back to his kid and his kid loves it. And one day his kid is like, Dad, I'm a Hindu now. Because <laughs> we're just telling him all these stories of Hindus, you know, Hindu gods. Which is so sweet because the father never said these were Hindu stories. Right. Not really. I mean, he never really like said, oh, I'm a Hindu. Or, like, like no, today I, we're learning Hinduism. Yeah, right? never. Like, I, like I don't even yeah. identify as that. Yes, you know, yes. someone said on TikTok, I was making a point that Chris, there is such a thing as Christian yoga. Of course, everybody got very angry about that because they're conflating the word Christian with colonizer, right. which I think is a mistake. Right. right. Um, the Christ was a great yogi. Yeah. So what I was trying to do in that video was reclaim the Christ for yoga. <laughs> but they saw it the other way around. But um, when I was making that video, um, I saw in the comment section, a lot of people getting really angry. And they were like, oh, is he even Hindu? Like a lot of my following on TikTok, who um, I think were following me because they were excited to see a young creator talking about Hinduism and making them feel more accepted about their own faith that they grew up in. And now here I am betraying them. Basically, I'm saying to them, eh, all religions are as good as any other religion. All paths are equally effective. And they didn't like that, you know? So I saw in the comment threads, people were saying, so sweet, they were saying, uh, oh, he's, pro he's not even Hindu. Is he even Hindu? He's not at all Hindu. And then uh, uh, one of this TikTok, I love him, much respect to him, but he's just a guy who goes on TikTok and makes fun of Caucasian-skinned people for loving India. It's kind of, there's some negativity there, but he's just like this angry British guy. Uh, Desi, you know, he probably got bullied. And so he's like angry almost at white people. So he goes out there and he's like, oh, how dare you do this dance? I'm a defender of Sanatana Dharma. You know, like I'm a defender of Hinduism. So he commented. He was like, supports beer yoga. He like gave a list of things that I did apparently. And he said, he's probably born a Christian. And you know, the, the reason I bring this up is like, I find this discourse very funny where it's like, what does it matter what I was born as? I was born to a family of South Asian yogis. My grandparents were Tamil-speaking Sri Lankans, you know, and they were Shaivas, devotees of the Hindu god Shiva. Um, but Shiva is an outsider deity. He's always been kind of like the bad boy of the Vedic pantheon, right? He's the king of yoga, Yogeshwara, lord of yoga, the lord of all crooked things, the master of wild beasts, you know, seated on a meditation mat made of tiger skin, symbolizing that he's conquered desire. He's surrounded by a scorpion and a spider. He wears on his neck snakes. I mean, you can imagine the Christian Christian missionary who first saw this is like, ah! <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, a, a wigged out symbol, right? right? That's what I grew up learning. Right. Of course, all my realizations that I've had uh, have been blessings from the Vedas and the Upanishads. Sure, that's all true, right? But if anything, it's only shown me the oneness of all truth. And so the idea that I was born a Hindu is not important. I might have been born a Hindu, but I died a Hindu too. I died a Hindu the day I woke up. Or in other words, the day I realized that I'm not the body and the mind, I died a Hindu. I died as an Indian, right? Um, similarly, a Christian, you can be born a Christian. If you see God, you'll realize that God is so infinite that you cannot cram her or him or it into Protestantism or Catholicism. So I found that discourse weird. But... 
Um, so I don't identify at all as any of these things. I'm just, you know, I'm an Advaitin, I'm a non-dualist, and any kind of non-duality is my kind of, non, my cup of tea, right? <laughs> so the father is like that too. The father that I work with, he's just a yogi mm-hmm. in the truest sense. So he was telling these stories to his kids and his kid of his own volition said, Dad, I'm a Hindu, <laughs> which is so cute. Yeah. So cute. Absolutely. Yeah. It all plays its part. Huh? Exactly. Yeah. For that kid, you must continue to expose that kid to Hinduism. Yeah. 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 You know? Absolutely. Super lovely. Yeah. And how about, so, yeah. So then how, how have the TikToks been going? What led you to, to get on there? Because I know you're kind of popular on, on you're very popular on TikTok. I don't know about and, that. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but anyways, like, um, what, what was the, the desire to, yeah. to share on that platform? That's a good to question. Start sharing online. Yeah. You know, you had, you had asked, um, perhaps an hour ago to introduce myself and give you like a, like a background in the right. story. And I'm always very reluctant to do that. Yeah. Cause I'm like, you know, mother will only speak if Nish has left the room. <laughs> right. And so I try my best to keep myself out of it. Yes. Um, but where I think it can help some biographical details can mm-hmm. maybe, you know, place them in, and, um, you should know that I never wanted to be what I'm doing on TikTok right now. And no, I maybe to this day, it's, it's very new. I'm still surprised by all of this and the work that we're doing together and the community that has kind of spontaneously sprung up yeah. from this. And, Emergent community. Yeah, totally. right? Because yeah. when I was a child, my grandfather, who's a great yogi, and everything that has ever happened in my life, I owe to this great master. You know, he was uh, the the truest spiritual practitioner you would you could meet. You know, a bhakta through and through, a lover of Shiva, and he was not like this kind of like, oh, I'm scared and I just love all these. No, it was Shiva. His mind was fixed on one ideal. And so much so that I would come down uh, for like a glass of milk or something at four in the morning or three in the morning, kind of like a midnight snack. I would come down late at night and I would see him seated on the table, you know, drumming his fingers on the table and writing Tevaram, which is the Tamil word for devotional songs. My grandfather, he was a temple singer. So go to the temple down the street and he would sing these songs at the evening pujas. That was his kind of jam. So he was a temple singer, a performer, and he would take me to the temple. And as a young boy, I would sit and watch him perform. And uh, more than that, I would sit with the musicians. I would sit with the drummer and the, the mirindangam, you know, and the, right. all that. I would sit with them. And then at home, he would ground me in all the philosophical doctrines, mm-hmm. but not on like an intellectual kind of level. He would ground me in just memorizing text, you know, mm-hmm. te- text in Tamil, Shiva Puranam, you know, mm-hmm. I would just memorize it front to back. Mm-hmm. And at first, there was never any concern as to what the meaning was. Mm-hmm. I would just sit there and with him, we'd chant together, Oh, damn, I forgot. Uh, you know, I'm just like doing this every day with him. And soon the, the whole thing had been committed to memory. But I had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. Like five minutes of chanting, right? Then we would go to a cremation. And at the cremation, um, a body would be burning. Because, you know, Hindus, we burn. Um, and at that cremation, something would just happen. Like my grandfather and me would somehow end up standing next to that body doing this, these mantras for the congregation. We weren't priests. We weren't Brahmins, you know, we weren't, um, um, like hired by these funerals to do it. We were just yogis. And it seems like when you practice yoga, 
um, naturally, you will rise to the occasion when people are dying. People only really look out, look to you when they're dying. Because what do we do? Yogis practice death every day. You know, Shiva is the ultimate mortuary symbol. And he wanders around cremation grounds, whispering mantras into the ears of the dying, right? So we um, would find ourselves in these funerals and we'd just be chanting these mantras. So that did something to me, I'm sure. Standing next to a burning body with my grandfather, a great master, chanting, and both of us chanting together. It, right. It's very hypnotic, right? That was powerful. And I would say at the temple, at the cremation ground, and in my grandfather's ashram, that's where I felt the vibration of spirituality. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. I had no words for it, but it had seeped into the very pores of my skin, like my every fiber of my being. Now, um, my grandfather, eventually he built like an annex in our house. So there was a house and my, my family eats meat. You know, my mother and father, now they're like super yogis. So now they're like cut out their meat, they're vegetarian. Uh, but when I was growing up, there was meat in the house. You know, there would be delicious lamb curry. Yeah. Oh my God, you wouldn't believe it. My grandmother would make this Sri Lankan, uh, it's called Varaval, which is a South Indian. <sighs> One cannot realize Brahman around such Varaval. It will draw you back into Maya. So powerful was its allure, you know. I think even the greatest sage of my grandmother's varable was put in front of him (laughs) or her. But uh, yeah, so she would make all these like lamb dishes, beautiful dishes. My grandfather, he was such a staunch yogi and we would be vegetarian Fridays. So Fridays, we'd be vegetarian. And my grandfather was such a devout practitioner that he would, uh, he built a whole other house next door. And in that house, no rajasic meals were to be prepared. No meat, no alcohol, nothing could crush the threshold. It was only the purest, most sattvic of meals, which means just vegetarian dishes, right? Right. Fruits. Earlier, we were just munching the fruits into the mic. (laughs) But just fruits and and milk. And then we'd go in and the whole place would be permeated by this aura of spirituality. Now, he had a room and then he had this little temple, right? Eventually, he moved into the temple. You know, Mm -hmm. he moved out of his room into the temple. He had a bed in that temple. And... um, there was the altar, beautiful altar for Shiva. And the whole thing, you know, it was very sparse, actually. It wasn't like this. Like, yeah. my house is a little maximalist. Yeah. Every wall is full of something. His was very kind of sparse. But there was a like central altar, you know, for Shiva. And when he moved in, he brought a TV. So in his room, he had this TV. He would watch, like, his Indian serial there. Brought his TV into the prayer room. And the TV, you won't believe it, would play. Um, there was, like, a channel, you know, on, on Indian television that just plays um, temple POVs. Mm-hmm. It's so weird. If you haven't seen it, it's hard to, to visualize it. But it's like these aerial shots of temples. And it's like a slideshow of just temples, you know. But it's basically, you love temples? All right, let's show you a couple hundred. <laughs> the India temple tour show, you know. Right. And he would just watch that mm-hmm. um, all day. He would just have it on. And when he had to be on the wheelchair, I would like help him onto the wheelchair. And he would say, wheel me into the the um, entrance to the ashram and then he would look out at the Shiva Lingam where Shaiva it's my name is Selva Lingam you know yeah. the Lingam is our central thing it's a big kind of stone Shiva Lingam yeah. and he would just sit there at sunset and just like stare at the Shiva Lingam like going into his samadhi you know and I would just sit next to him mm. so I've been, I've been a little anachronistic because yeah. these things happen not just as a child but also throughout my life right. 
But as a child, also my grandmother on Friday, one hour she would bathe, right? Indians and their ba, you know, tell me about it. She would bathe for an hour. She would put her hair up, which went down to her, you know, knees up into a nice bun. She would come out in a nice sari. And for an hour at 12 o'clock every Friday and, and later in her life every day, she would perform the most beautiful puja. And sometimes I'd be in my room like playing video games or something, like doing something inane. Um, but I would hear from beyond the door because my grandfather had his thing, right? My grandmother's ashram, not ashram, but her, her puja table was bit, like if you go up the stairs, there are three rooms. One was her room, my parents' room and my room. And there was this like kind of landing platform at the top of the stairs. That's where the altar was. So that's where she would do her puja. So when I was in the room, I would hear her ringing the bell, chanting. Um, and she was so quiet about it. And suddenly, there would be a smell. A cloud of incense would enter through the bottom of my door. It would waft over me. And that fragrance, you know, that vibration, I would sometimes peek out. And all she, I would see would be my grandmother, seated, freshly showered at the altar, flipping through a little prayer book. Wow, could there have been a better Hindu woman than her? I, I, I've yet to meet one. Yeah. You know, because all she did was pray, bathe, cook b- b- delicious mm-hmm. meals, dote on her family, you know. So then after this prayer, you know, one thing white people will know, Caucasian people will know, Hinduism is very attractive because the food is so damn good. <laughs> you go to the temple, you eat the prasad, you're like, damn, I'm a Hare Krishna now. <laughs> Fuck everything else. I am into, yeah. So make, like, make a TikTok about that and send it to your friends yeah. who accept you. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> I'll send him the clip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But damn, so she would she would cook on Fridays, beautiful vegetarian food. So after the prayer, my Pavlovian conditioning was like this. After that beautiful prayer, I would eat beautiful vegetarian food. Mm. My grandmother's home cooked food. I have not tasted the likes of it. Yes. That did it for me, I guess, right? Yeah. But um now that's all going on in the subconscious. I'm yeah. not actively thinking about spiritual life. Right. I'm mostly interested in Star Wars. Right. And Lord of the Rings and mm-hmm. Nightmare Before Christmas. I don't know why these these three things, these three movies appeal to me so much. Yeah. And I think you can think, see why, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see the connection. Yeah, only now. But back then I was like really obsessed with these movies. And Nightmare Before Christmas was a weird one. You know, I would like get a can of Pepsi because kids can digest anything. But I would get a can of Pepsi, go upstairs. And in the morning at like seven in the morning put on my VCR, my DVD for Nightmare Before Christmas and just watch it every day. It's kind of weird, right? But I would watch... Yeah, I would watch Nightmare Before Christmas. I would watch Lord of the Rings with lunch every every other day. Like, I think I've seen Return of the King like a million times. Yeah. But I just, I love the speeches that Aragorn would give yeah. and just the values in that movie. Of, Absolutely. You know? And yeah. then Star Wars. That really did it oh, for me. I yeah. read all the books. I like was really into it. Well, that's very much based on like the Vedic pantheon and everything. Yeah, Master Yoda, Yoda. more like Master Yoga. Absolutely, Mace Windu, more like more like Mace Hindu. <laughs> yes, <sighs> yes, yeah. So here's what's going on. George Lucas is having his '60s revolution. He's going to Hare Krishna temples. Luke, George, Luke <laughs> yeah, Luke, yeah. The, he it's, is his own hero. <laughs> yeah, it's great, right. Isn't it beautiful? And we have the light Skywalker, the, the Chidakash. Yes, you know, very beautiful. Oh, and the saber of light, like the sword of discrimination, like Manjushri has her flaming sword. Have you seen? There's Manjushri over there on that altar. She's a Tibetan deity. She's often depicted with a a flaming sword. 
And yeah. even Lord Kalki is supposed to have Kalki, a, a flaming sword. Yeah, yeah like yeah. all of that. So cool, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, there you'll see Kali with her sickle and her sword, everything. I've even heard it compared to the Kundalini, the, the spine channel. Right. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's I, that's new to me. That's yeah. beautiful. Like only a Jedi can make the, the saber ignite. Whoa, that's good. I didn't... Yeah. Whoa, dude, that's yeah. a new one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, yeah, I often yeah. talk to people about Star Wars and like yeah. the symbolism of it, but that's a new one. I didn't like only a Jedi can craft. Ah, I see. You have finished the construction of your lightsaber. Yes. Your training is complete, right? <laughs> Darth yes. Vader says to Luke. Yes. And, uh, that's beautiful. And, and Anakin keeps losing his lightsaber, right? Yes. Episode two. And, and, and Obi-Wan is like, cause I often make fun of that. I'm like, as a Jedi, you shouldn't be attached to your lightsaber, right? Right. And Luke, I think, at the the final movies is kind of like I'm done. I put away my lightsaber. I just meditate on a rock. Right. He's doing the Sazu <laughs> thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of weird that they're attached to their lightsabers. But you're right. If you see it in this way, right. then Anakin is being flippant right. with his spiritual powers. He's using his siddhis. He's getting cocky, right? And that's right. what eventually leads him. Okay, beautiful. Absolutely. Anyway, we could talk another three yeah, hours on that alone. Yeah. Get back on topic. Um. The Star Wars thing was really important to me, right? I loved it. It was just kind of making an impression on me in a way that as a young kid, I could understand. And there were connections. I think this is why I've come to America and I've enjoyed teaching here because as a child, I would watch these American movies, British movies. I'd see American TV. I loved Halloween. We just said my favorite thing on TV. Horror movies. I love horror movies, Halloween. So as a Shiva, we love cremation grounds. We love death. So Jack Skellington from Nightmare Before Christmas, all that was so good. But I will say this, I did have a ritual that I never really thought about until recently. But every night before I would go to bed, unfailingly, I would go and stand at the altar and pray to Shiva. But I made up like a, a specific prayer that I would repeat every day. And some days I didn't want to do it, but I would do it. I don't know why, but I would show up and I had a kind of thing. I would say, okay, uh, Lord Shiva, please first protect the my dad, because I, I love my dad so much. Every boy loves his father so much, right? He's like, please protect my dad. Please keep him safe. Protect my mom. Protect my house. I'm sorry, my mom kind of came second there. But as a young boy, I was like, my dad. I don't know why. But uh, uh, then protect my dog, my apache and tata. Like, I would just have this, like, kind of thing. And then I would, and then protect the world. I would have this kind of script that I would say. And it would take me about 20 to 30 minutes. And I would sometimes loathe doing it because it'd be hot. And the thing about that stairway is that at night, it would be like super dark. You know, like when you walked out onto the platform, it'd be so dark that when you stand with your back to the darkness, looking at the altar, you feel really exposed and scared. So I have these memories of feeling fear in front of the altar, but knowing I had to do my prayer. So in a way, I realized like, oh, this is my refuge from fear. I think as a child, I had found that place in which I wasn't out of fear. I was in the midst of it, but I could be there. You know, I could stand my ground, so to speak. Um, and I think fear of the dark is something we all carry with us, you know? Yeah. Um, but so that was an initial childhood experience. Yeah. To make a long story longer, uh, I didn't want to be a, a teacher. I wanted to be a guitar player. You know, by the time I hit age, oh, Sai Baba, that was important. Age right. 14, Sai Baba ashram. Mm-hmm. I think there was a Shaktipat there, certainly. Mm-hmm. You know, spending time at his ashram. Mm-hmm. My mom is his devotee, devotee, right. you know? So then... Um, Sai Baba happened. I was reading the Gita on my own. You know, I started getting really into like literature. Yeah. Spiritual literature, Ram Das, all that. I loved it. At, the, at the, those ages? 14, yeah. 14. 14. Wow. 14 is when I started reading. Yeah. Right? Like before that, if I read and I read a lot, it would be storybooks. Right. I read a lot of Star Wars books. Yeah. 
Um, I liked Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. I read that when I was 12 and I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Self-help. Fuck yeah. yeah. Um, then I read uh, Robin Sharma. Yeah. Monk who sold his Ferrari, loved that. I dev- oh my god, I devoured Paulo Coelho and Robin Sharma. Amazing. But yeah. those those were kind of like okay, I'm going from fiction, fiction, fiction to literary fiction, um, and that's mostly about spiritual themes. And then something happened where I just like became Sai Baba probably happened, but I just became interested in like nonfiction spiritual literature. Mm-hmm. My first Gita was the Chinmayanda Gita mm-hmm. and I devoured that commentary. O- over years, I would read it again and again and again. Herman Hesse's Siddhartha was right. spiritual fiction that I devoured while in India on the backwaters of Kerala. So you must have been 14, 15 at this time. 14, yes. Okay. 14 is when I started reading, right? right, right. Um, like reading like nobody's business. Yeah. So something was going, there was an intellectual development happening. I was reading, 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 getting all these ideas. Um, but I was a bhakta, you know, my heart demanded song and music and ecstasy. What I wanted was to dance and be ecstatic. So when I heard Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, I was like, damn, that's temple music. It sounded like the temple music, right? That I had heard my grandfather singing big, loud sounds. So I wanted to be a rock and roll guitar player. It's all I wanted to be. Of course, Parents didn't like that. This was good training for me because this was my training and standing my ground. A lot of people say, I want to be a rock star. They don't do it. Yeah. They're too afraid of, of hunger, cold. I said, you know what? Let me die. Yeah. Let me die homeless and poor and cold. Then live safe and regretful that I never followed my dream. Right. I had an English teacher who I told, I, I'm, I'm going to move to LA to be a rock and roll guitar player. He said, why not? I'm like, fuck yeah, that's it. Why not? <laughs> right. What a great teacher. Yeah, what a great teacher. Um, he was the best. Bald man, tall, bald Canadian man. Mm. <laughs> this is back at home. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Malaysia. Back at home, yeah. So then I came to America for that. Right. I came to America to play rock and roll guitar. Mm-hmm. And for three years, I'm just in bands trying to make it, right? Managers, uh, concert promoters, Sunset Boulevard. You just came to a show last night. All yeah. of that. All of that. Like just playing rock and roll guitar. And I loved it because I would find myself up at night writing songs. Um, and at this point, I had stopped praying. Mm-hmm. I wasn't doing my prayers. I wasn't really meditating or doing any yoga. This a few years ago? or No, this is like four, five, two, 2016. Okay. You know, okay, something else you should know is that 2015 or maybe towards the end of 2014, I became very interested in Western ceremonial magic. Mm-hmm. So I started practicing Western ceremonial magic. That's definitely, it was, that was just happening. Right. I was doing lesser banishing rituals every day, reading the Western literature. Right. Like the Kybalion and the Hermetica and that stuff, right? The Kabbalah, like all that stuff. So I was doing that, but it was very private. It was just my own thing. I Just my own spiritual search. But outwardly, I was just a guitar player, playing guitar or whatever. What happened with the TikTok thing was my grandfather passed away. Mm-hmm. So it was the the beginning of COVID, like right before the pandemic and the world shut down, right before that happened, right before his birthday, he like took his Mahasamadhi. He was like, I'm Audi 5000, died like a yogi. He knew when he planned it, he had the Shiva Purana playing the whole time, you know, like mantras going in his room and he just beautifully left the body. Now, the interesting thing is the night before, um, I didn't hear about his passing yet because I'm here. The night before, I had a very vivid dream when he was on a, the other side of a river. The river was too thin to be the Ganga, you know, as much as poetically I would like it to be. It was too thin. It was like a thin, narrow stream. And across the stream, there was an ashram, very small. And in it was my grandfather waving lights like a pujari, you know, like a priest. And he looked over at me and maybe almost beckoned me 
or like communicated to me something. I didn't know what he said, but when I woke up, I suddenly, for some reason, that was the singularity in my life. I just woke up and I was like, I have no interest in in being a rock and roll guitar player in the way that I wanted. I don't want to be famous anymore. I did, you know. I did want to have like a really big, successful international touring band. I really did want to have the wealth that that would bring. And I really did enjoy all the romance and the free drugs and the all. The, I, I loved it, you know. But that morning I woke up and I, it, something in me had shifted. It was probably his grace, right? His blessing. And not only that, not only it was like, okay, I don't really want to be that anymore. It's all these pretenses and I'm tired of it. I don't want to live a life of pretense. But not only that, something else also came out, which was I want to teach yoga. And I don't know why, because I have nothing to teach. I don't know anything, you know. I can teach you scales, but I don't know anything. Um, so I was like, okay, what will I teach? And why do I want to teach? I took some teacher training programs here in the US. Yeah. All just asana. And I'm like, okay, I can teach asana. I can yeah. teach postures. So I finished my teacher training program right about the time as he died, you know, which is weird. I, it's kind of anachronistic, I know. but Ah, uh, right, because this dream happened before he his died. Past, before his passing. The night before. The night before. Yeah, but one thing also is like a couple of months before, I signed up for a 200-hour teacher training program with no intention to teach. I see. Just to like increase my practice. Right. Because only six months ago, I got involved in asana. Mm-hmm. I, you know, at, we had a Vivekananda ashram at our home and my father and grandfather did some asana. Yes. As, but it wasn't a big part of our practice. Remember, yogis in India, we don't do asana. Right. We do the real stuff, yes. right? We yeah. meditate. Yes. <laughs> we pray, the real yoga, right? Asana is good, but the it's not limbs. the higher, yeah, the, the what we call antar yoga, mm-hmm. inner yoga. Mm-hmm. We're not really that interested in bahir yoga, mm-hmm. external yoga, asana, pranayama. Um, but when I read Ram Das's book, you know, I was like, okay, cool. I'll try some of the poses on the back of the book, you know, whatever. So I did do some poses, but it wasn't until the summer of 2019, recently, you know, yeah. that I got involved in asana. Yeah. I started practicing asana every day. I really took to it. It came so naturally. Yeah. Poses came quickly. Yeah. Um, and I realized like, if you practice asana after meditation, you'll just find that you can do the poses better. Right. And so I think a lifetime's work of spiritual contemplation had prepared me for asana. Right. And so I loved it. And so much so that I wanted to do a teacher training just because. Mm-hmm. No intention of teaching. Right as I finished my 200-hour teacher training, my grandfather passed. And then I decided, okay, I'll do a 300-hour teaching and actually be a teacher. Yeah. So then I finished my 300-hour teacher, teacher training. And uh, there was a studio that had started up in the beginning of the pandemic. It was called Stay Home Yoga. Mm-hmm. My friend Annie started it. Mm-hmm. And it was just a place for yoga teachers who... Um, no longer had studios to kind of teach. Yeah. Totally donation-based, which basically meant free. Yeah. <laughs> and that's stay home. Stay home, O-M. right? Yes. Yeah, like stay home, yes. right? Stay home yoga. A part of it was because people at the beginning of the pandemic weren't staying home. They were just going about. And and it was sad because this was a really profound opportunity. Whatever your views are on the pandemic, you know, um, it, an opportunity to stay at home and be with yourself should be seized. Yes. And so it was unfortunate that people didn't want to stay home. Yeah. So Annie was so smart to start Stay Home Yoga and say, um, I'm going to create things for people to to have a better time at home. Yeah. And so she wanted to offer Kirtan and my friend Vishnu Priya, who's the best Kirtan singer I've ever... She'll make a Vaishnava out of me, I'm telling you. <laughs> that's for Shaiva to say that's a lot. <laughs> but she's so beautiful. And she, she would sing Kirtan there. Uh, Rugella, a friend of ours, would offer dance lessons. It was really kind of an eclectic... Uh, Jessica Jones would teach art all on Zoom yeah all on Zoom so you get art classes dance classes kirtan all on Zoom how beautiful and yoga lots of yoga so um, uh, someone 
heard that that was happening and linked me to that. And I texted Annie and I was like, I'd like to get involved. And she said, sure, give me your class times. I said, okay, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, same class times. I'm still doing them now. I changed the times a bit, but same days. But something in me said, let's do a philosophy day on Monday night. I want to teach philosophy. I want to teach what I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita, Vedas, all that. So I got that Monday night slot. And at first it was like me and two people, right? It was just a small group talking philosophy. And now look, it's become such a beautiful community. Yes. You know, people all over the world come and we talk and it's really fun. So how did that happen? I think it's just my grandfather, right? It's my grandfather who showed me, fuck all that you were doing before. It's not going to make you happy in the way you think it is. Let me show you the source of all your bliss, what you've truly been looking for this whole time. Yeah. And that's awareness. So uh, he got me on the path as a spiritual, real spiritual aspirant. Right. You know, and then my, my sadhana intensified from that point on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shankara says in his text, Aparokshana Bhuti, when you become absorbed in contemplation of the self, the monk forgets to go beg for his food and he even forgets his daily bath. Like that was like what it felt like. You know, I was just so into it. Um, and certain things that happened in my life at that time that had really challenged my notions of selfhood. Mm-hmm. So it was all grace, mm-hmm. you know, beautiful. And then um, teaching the philosophy or whatever, uh, TikTok came across my uh, table, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. And because we were doing stay home yoga, we were already offering online yoga resources. It was only a short step to go from o- offering yeah. one hour classes to one minute videos. Yeah. Just one post. Here's yeah. how to do down dog. Yeah. And you know, at first it was just poses because I don't feel like I have anything to offer other than poses. So I was just like, here's how to do down dog, you know, make sure you're putting weight in the thumb and first, first finger, etc. Just asana, just teaching asana. And then some fool injured themselves. I was teaching Padmasana. You know, I was saying, okay, everybody wants to sit in Padmasana. Here's how to do it. Lotus pose. Lotus pose. Yeah. Padmasana. And then here's some preliminary hip openers, you know, to get to that. And at the end of the video, I said, hey, please don't fetishize Padmasana. I'm an Indian boy. I've been eating meals on the floor my whole life. You are a Western man sitting in a chair. Meditate in a chair. Why do you need to sit like this? I said all of that, but still some fool really wanted the Padmasana, sat in it without any proper like warm up or whatever, injured the knee and got upset about it. It was like, I tried this. I injured my knee. And so I had to make a video saying, you fool, practice safely, you know, like warm up. Don't jump into poses right away. This is my first like niche in the screen video. Yes. And people start asking questions. And that turned into more conversations about yoga and cultural appropriation. So the first thing I started talking about was yoga and cultural appropriation. Because mm-hmm. remember, our community on the internet is very like um, gatekeepery almost and very politically charged and righteous. And Which community? The, the TikTok community yeah, or yeah, people yeah. in the right, world. Right, right. Apparently... This is an urban myth. Apparently, there exists a group of people. I'm speaking in hushed whispers in case they hear me. Apparently, according to TikTok, they might be. I've never met them. And I don't think those people have either. But it's an urban legend, right? There's a group of people. They're called the YT people. I don't know what it stands for yet. But YT. White. YT. And apparently, they're stealing yoga. Apparently, they're still colonizing India. I don't know. Apparently, they've like, they've hacked my mind and I am now a puppet for the YT. That's why I'm quiet in case they kill me for revealing this. (laughs) But apparently there exist, according to some people, 
a nameless, faceless oppressor. Sounds like a Trumpism, right? Yeah. That there is a nameless, faceless oppressor called white people. Whenever I challenge an Indian to point out a studio that they hate or like a, a magazine that they're upset at, they usually don't do it. I mean, yeah, there are real examples in the world, like Core Power maybe, right? Just the fitness place. Yeah. And they play like Lil Peep music right. while you're there. Obviously, that's, ugh. Like, I mean, you know, as like a yogi, you come into Core Power and you're like, what are you people? What? This is prayer. But then you realize, no, that has its place too. There are people who in Core Power will end up at Yoga Works, yeah. a much more enlightened studio, who will end up studying real spirituality, yeah. you know? So it's all part of the journey. However, I get it, like beer, yoga, whatever. But it's not like these Caucasian practitioners are intending to do it. They just don't know, right? Right? They think yoga is asana. You know, when you come and say, I'm a yoga teacher, really what you're saying is you're an asana teacher, right? You know, right. but that's what they think. And you know what's so scary? Indians think that too. Mm -hmm. They think that yoga is asana. So anyway, um, this nameless, faceless oppressor, the white people, are apparently stealing yoga or like colonizing or whatever. And there was a conversation about closed practices. And I'm like, literally, there could not be in this world a more open practice than Hinduism. Literally could not be. Right. It says anything goes. Yeah. Do Hindus believe in gods? Yeah, some. Some don't. Yeah. Is God a father? No, for some it's a mother. For some it's a child. <laughs> so I was trying to say that. And that's what first got me kind of like an audience. Mm -hmm. Then from there... Um, in order to back up my claims about yoga being an open tradition, I had to go to scripture and explain some scriptural ideas, mm -hmm. which brought me into more philosoph philosophical kind of dial yeah. dialogue. And that's what the TikTok kind of came out of. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Wow. So it, it all emerged very much just in responses. In responses, yeah. To you. Exactly. Very nice. very nice. Yeah, so beautiful. I take a bathroom break? Oh, please. Absolutely. But um, because I was going to uh, speak with songs that I could speak mm. with her yesterday. I was mm -hmm. speaking with her. I met her at the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned her. Yeah. You mentioned her. Oh, you know, before we get yeah. there, I wanted to ask you please. something, though. So you said that you had that moment of awakening with your grandfather, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And you, you said all these things that I was doing, fuck all of that, yeah. you know? like, And then you went into that period of deep contemplation. But yet, at that time... I mean, when did you get married? And then, and also you just played a rock show last night. So all those things are still happening. Right. Isn't right? that crazy? Yeah. Can you tell yeah. me about that? There was definitely a period where I had to take a step back from all of it though. Right. right like right. I, I kind of stopped playing guitar almost. Yes. Uh, you know, stopped recording and stopped kind of putting music out. Definitely. There were no shows happening at the time because right. COVID, right. Yeah. All the clubs were closed. So that was funny too, because that was serendipity. If the clubs were open, I'd probably still be involved in that more. So with the clubs closing, that gave me that space. And there was also in this period of my life, like a lot of solitude, yeah. you know, like tremendous amounts of solitude, um, time to just be with myself under the tree with the, with the book, you know, so something was cooking and all of this. And, um, I had met my wife, um, three years ago at a Halloween show. So I was playing a concert and she was there and we met. And, uh, from that first night, that first night onward, um, Something was very, very strong in our connection. You know, it felt like we had really been spiritual partners for a long time. And I felt like her spiritual ideals were very aligned with mine. And at that time, I understood it in the lens of art making. I was like, here's finally someone who is willing to put art first before the belly. You know, everyone else is saying they're an artist. Everyone's a filmmaker, but I haven't seen any films. 
right? Everyone says they're a musician, but the EP hasn't come out. You know what I mean? Like we live in LA where everyone is telling you they're an artist, but no one seems to be following through. Hannah, my wife, she paints. Like, look at this we're prolifically, right? Yeah, we're basically sitting in her art gallery and, <laughs> and she paints prolifically. Wow. And when I saw her volume, I was like, that's a true artist. And so to me, I was like, this is someone who shares my ideals. And from that first night, we were like best friends, you know, right. we spent a lot of time together. And uh, our relationship, it's funny, it started when I decided to be celibate. Mm-hmm. So right before our relationship, it was the, um, the summer of 2018. Mm-hmm. You know, I had gone to Thailand and I was in Thailand by myself uh, with a previous partner. We went to Thailand. And I had a moment like by myself in the ocean, like on a promontory where there was like the the first squall of like, there was like a rain that had moved towards me. And it was a very long promontory, like a finger-like projection. And the, the sea was so calm. And I just walked out to the, it's miles out, you know, I walked out. And suddenly, just like that, a storm came, you know, it congealed. I saw it congeal and I saw it sweep across the ocean to me and the ocean was getting rough. And now I'm like, do I walk back? Because if I walk back, it, the, the storm would hit me from behind and the rocks were mossy and slippery and it was a long way. So I was like, will the thing rise, you know? And I thought, ah, I'm just going to hold on to this rock and see what happens. The storm came and the ocean got rowdy and we got slapped by the storm. But as soon as it came, it went. Everything was safe. But there was tremendous fear in that moment, you know? And that fear... Um, I think was all the fear in my life put together. I don't know. The amount of fear I felt there in this foreign country, um, out in the ocean, nobody knew I was there. Like at that beach, it was like a deserted beach. I was like, okay, this is how people die. And drowning is so scary, man. Like, and the the storm and the lightning. I was like, okay, the fear I'm feeling now is probably the the most fear I've ever felt in my life. Then when I just held on and when it all ended, just like that, it came and went. It left in its wake a feeling of profound beauty. You know, like, I was probably the first person in Thailand to feel that rain upon my face. It was like the purest, you were talking about nature earlier and how, like, love of God just makes you, communion with nature just becomes clearer. I was probably the first person in, the, in Thailand to feel that purity. And that was something to me. Like, the purity of the rain did something to me. I was like, okay, I'm celibate now. You know, I'm Brahmacharya uh, properly, truly, and I'm just committing my life to like art. So it, was, it wasn't spirituality yet. It was art. I mean, I was reading like spiritual books. I had Yogananda's autobiography of Yogi, my travel case, but it was art. So I was like, no more sex, no more relationships for the sake of ego gratification. No longer looking for my completion in a partner. I'm going to be a rock and roll guitar player religiously. <laughs> that was when I met Hannah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Like when I didn't want a relationship, yeah. that's when a real one showed up in my life. Right. Suddenly I was happy, perfectly happy. I didn't need a relationship. Yeah. She was perfectly happy and being happy together made for the best relationship. Right. So that was three years of that relationship and the safety of that, the encouragement that Hannah's given me, you know, her own spiritual pursuit. She is a devout bhakta, mm-hmm. one of the best bhaktas and the kind of bhakta who is very smart about it. You know, she doesn't just take faith she struggles with faith. She's like the bhakta that struggles with faith because of her intellectualizing, yet still triumphs in her deep intuitive understanding of God. You know? So that's beautiful. And she's encouraged me. So that period of time in my life where I had a lot of space and silence and time to think, uh, a lot of it was because she provided me that space, you know? 
to really think. And I had gone through a major revolution in my life and uh, credit to her for like not being disturbed by how much of an inversion my life had, you know? It's not that much. I mean, art to spiritualize short step. Seems not like pretty quick. Too. Yeah. It's not like accounting stockbroker going to like, you know, it's like yeah. still an artist, a Brahmachari sadhu artist, you know, going to. So it, it did happen quickly. And, and very quickly, my, my whole demeanor had changed. My speech had changed. All I want to talk about was God. I talk about God forever, yeah. you know? And she was like, damn, now he's only talking about God, you know? <laughs> and to her credit, she saw the value in that. And also now is deeply devout and deeply devoted to a practice. So naturally, we got married recently, two months ago, which is very exciting. Yeah. You know, and we got married in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Um, and we're still looking to do the temple wedding. But yeah, so that, that happened. I got, I've, I've been married. I'm now householder. Yeah. Huh? So exciting. yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. And um and then the rock then the rock shows continued. Too. Yeah, and then the clubs all opened up again yeah. and the bands called again and they yeah. were like, You wanna you know, and during the pandemic too, my friend would come over and just throw together a song for fun, just cause it's something I used to do and just nothing serious, right? And that's when I think it, it became the most fun for me. It was no more pressure. It was not like, Oh, we have to do this show because we need to be this. No, it was just Here's let's write a song. Yeah. Simple joy of coming together and writing a song is enough. Right. Um, and then here, let's come together and play a show for the people that we love. Yeah. And there's no ambition here. Right. There's no desire to make the band bigger. Yeah. Um, and for some reason, that seems to make the band bigger. <laughs> yeah. That's the beautiful paradox. That's, isn't it beautiful? Yeah. So I'm still yeah. playing shows and it's exciting. Yeah. yeah. So internally, it's totally pure and yeah. it just happens. I could stop like playing all of that. We saw yeah. being in the show today and I don't think anything would change in the way that I feel. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a simple joy in the moment. Yes. Lovely. Lovely. And you rocked it last night. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> you, rocked Thank it you last for night. coming. <laughs> um, okay. So now skipping uh, just to a different thing. Um, so song who I, who I met yesterday, you tutor one of her. Yeah, um, three of her children. Three of her children. So Zach is the youngest. Yeah. We started with Zach and it was just debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, it was him and his friends. How old is Zach? Zach is 12. Okay. 11 or 12. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Age is quite difficult for me. They're all the same age to me, which is ancient. Right. right? Because these are ancient beings. They must be. They must be. Yeah. And not only are their bodies like made of ancient material, but they are like their being, their subtle body, their suksma sharira, suksma sharira, has, has, kind of oh my god it's been here as long as anyone else has so they're ancient yeah. beings right so yes. i don't try to see them as no, age but no. he's like 11 12 right? yeah for practical um, matters yeah for practical matters yeah. he's 11 the body is 11 and 12 right, right? Yeah. um he's obviously way beyond that um but um then i started working with the older brother and his friend so kai and finley and we started also debate mm -hmm. but more less debate more like critical thinking right and like philosophy yeah um and then recently, only recently, I started working with her middle son, Kaz, who is a brilliant meditator. He's in art school. He's an artist already. Yeah. And he's very inclined to like, all three of her kids are like sadhus. Right. Because I think she herself has a deep, deep renunciation. Right. You know, a deep kind of understanding for spiritual truths. So Kaz, he is um, what uh, very Buddhist kind of oriented meditator. So every Wednesday I see him in the morning and we just meditate. Yeah. So that's what I do, yeah. Wow. And have you had any particularly insightful moments when in company of these beautiful souls? Dude, every day. Yeah. <laughs> every, every single day, man. Like uh, one thing that was really sweet, I, I thought it was really funny. We were doing a riddles, you know, like for instance, um, 
A blue house is made of blue bricks. A red house is made of red bricks. A green house is made of what color bricks? Green. No, glass. <laughs> right? It like gets you, right? Because yes. it's like priming. <laughs> Got me so fast. Yeah, or like the rooster lays an egg on the top of a triangular roof. Which side does the egg roll down? Left or right? Left. Rooster doesn't lay eggs. I know. Right? That's the, it's like, it's like, happened again. Yeah. We were doing this kind of stuff and they were like, they love this stuff, yeah. right? So yeah. that day was just, we were making up riddles to trick each other. So I was like, okay, there's something I recycled, but like, what, what bites but has no teeth? What flies but has no wings? What whistles but has no lips? You know, what cries but has no tears? I was just saying that, like, what is it? Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's the wind. That's the answer that I had in my mind. But this kid goes, Demons! Yes. I loved it, loved it, loved it. It's so good and so smart. And I was like, I was gonna say the wind, but damn, your answer is good too. Yeah. Right? That's correct. Yeah. It's like he knew uh, that demons weren't like embodied. Yeah. They were, they were like the wind, right. like voices. Like, wow, it was so, it's so subtle. Yeah. I was awed. And of course, that Kundalini awakening was a particularly big one. Uh, the, the kid, the child who. Yeah. We were talking about the matrix, just had that whole, yes, yeah, yes. that was a big one for yes. me as a teacher to like learn about that. Yeah. Um, Why do you call that a Kundalini awakening? I don't know that it was, yeah. but it's like, I mean, the symptoms of it, like he was right. deeply disturbed. He was very indrawn. Yeah. Mother described it as a kind of like bad trip because yeah. she, she was familiar with that whole scene of psychedelia and spirituality. Yeah. So she thought he was going through a bad trip. He had fever, right? right. all that stuff that would typically happen to someone. Yeah. yeah. Love it. That was great. And Zach, one night, one day, this was so great. We were um, talking about um, whether cars were better than bicycles, something yeah. inane like that, right? And he said, no, 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 bicycles, no, cars are better because you're more likely to get into an accident. And I'm like, don't you mean bicycles are better because you're more likely to get into an accident with a car? He said, no, cars are better because you're more likely to get into an accident. I'm like, cool, tell me more. And he's like, because then you're more likely to die. And this world is meaningless anyway, so get out while you can. <laughs> I was like... We'll make a Buddhist out of you yet. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And then another time um, we were talking about like dreams, waking, you know, ontological primacy. And Kai, he had said, when I'm in the dream, this was so deep. He says, I don't feel um, other people's energy. And when I'm in the world, I feel other people's energy. He's very sensitive to people's yeah. aura and vibe. But he said in the dream, he doesn't feel that. Yeah. He feels like everyone, he just doesn't feel it. And he realized that's because everyone in the dream is him. You know, and most people, they really believe that people in their dreams are like other people. I was like, what does my dream mean? Who was I in the dream? You fool, you were everyone in your dream. Yeah. <laughs> What's your problem? Like everyone in the dream was in your mind. Right. You projected it, right? So Kai, he realized that. He realized that through realizing, he couldn't feel people in his dreams. You see, what he's doing here is he's lucid dreaming. You know, he's aware enough in his dream to note that it feels different in terms of vibration, right. which is very advanced. Right. That moved me. And then it goes one step further. Even before I had given my, my lecture, you know, my, my trademark, Avesta Traya Viveka, right. that's my favorite thing to talk about. But even before we had done any of that, he says to me on his own volition, of his own volition, um, now in the waking world, just because I had said, oh, in the dreaming world, while we're dreaming, we take it to be real. But then when we wake up, we realize it was just a dream. It was in us. Can't the same thing happen in the waking world? And he was like, yeah, you know, in the dream world, there are all these people. It's like a baby and there's like a tree. And I think that they're all different. But then when I wake up, I realize they were all in me. What if, and this was his own idea, all of us now are just part of a being's dream. They're kind of like Vishnu's dream almost, right? Yeah. And that all of us are not actually different. We're just all the projections of this one being. And then when that one being wakes up, all there would be is one being. 
you know, so kind of like non-dual realization just from realizing how he feels in a dream. Yeah. Beautiful. That moved me so much. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. This is Kai. Kai. Yeah. Very lovely. Oh no, man. Yeah. I just think it's so beautiful. It's, you know, some of these experiences you're having and especially, um, you know, like an outlet for people who otherwise, you know, that's the thing. Yeah. A place for people to encounter spirituality at a young age in yeah. a world that does not give them such space. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That space is, is so beautiful. And yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. You're seeing song tomorrow.